You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Vice President, I don't know how many people know that you, um, let's see, your mother was divorced at a very early age. When I was less than two years of age. That's why you don't remember Omaha. No. And uh, did you ever meet your real father, do you know? Him. Yes, I did. She when remarried, I was, I believe it. My mother remarried, or she married a very outstanding civic leader in Grand Rapids. She had left Omaha and came back to Grand Rapids where her parents were living, and I came back with her. What, what is your stepfather's name? My stepfather's name is Gerald R. Ford. and You took his name? I took his name. Uh, he adopted me when I was in my teens. Oh, that's right. And, you, you were uh, born a uh, king, I believe. I was born so, Leslie, Leslie King, king. Jr. And when <clears throat> my mother yeah. remarried, why, I took the name of my stepfather. And actually, until I was about 17, I didn't know that Gerald R. Ford was not my father. I learned um, indirectly first by uh, inference. And then I had, a, I think, an interesting but a very startling experience as a young person would have. I was working at a restaurant across the from the high school where I was going to school, and I used to work from 11.30 to 1 and make hamburgs and wash dishes and take the money that people paid for those kind of lousy lunches we served. But uh, anyhow, I, I was standing there working one day in this restaurant my senior year in high school, and I noticed the man standing across the rather narrow store, standing in front of the candy counter. Stood there for a long time. He was a stranger. And finally, uh, as I was handling some food or washing dishes, he walked across and said, uh, uh, Leslie, I'm your father. I was a little startled first to be uh, identified as Leslie, and then he said, uh, yes, I am your father. I was divorced from your mother, and he said, would you uh, go out to lunch with me? And I was really startled, and I spoke to Bill Scrooges, who was a good Greek proprietor of this uh, Hamburg joint. I said, Bill, um, something's come up. This gentleman wants to see me. He uh, says he's my father. Um, can I be excused? And Bill Scrooges uh, was a very great guy. Uh, said yes, and so I took my apron off and went off and with my uh, real father. He had just come from Riverton, Wyoming, to Detroit to pick up a new Lincoln. And I was working uh, five days a week from 11.30 to 1, and one night a week from 7 to 10 for $2 a week plus 50 cents a day for lunch. So I was kind of... Those were the days. Yeah, sure were. <laughs> Was it awfully strange to look into a man's face and, and look for your own features? Uh, did he resemble you? I think there was a resemblance. Uh, the more difficult uh, part of it was going home that night and telling my stepfather and my mother uh, what had happened and transpired. They were, um, of course, very understanding. He invited me out to Wyoming. Uh, after sort of neglecting me for 17 years. By the way, that wasn't the moment you found out that you had a well, true father. Well, I really was it, was uh, had heard, heard some inferences or innuendo that I was, uh, I had a 
a real father, and I was living with my stepfather. But this was the first time I ever saw him and spoke to him. And it hadn't sunk in, I guess. Uh, you know, I didn't pay much attention because my stepfather, as far as I was concerned, had really brought me up, and a good many people at home uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, thought that we looked alike, uh, that we acted alike, we had the same interests. So it was quite startling to the people in Grand Rapids when it became known that I, that Gerald R. Ford was my stepfather. Did you have any desire to say to him, why haven't you contacted me before? Why did you wait 17 years to talk to There was a temptation, but like uh, in politics, you bite your tongue sometimes when you should, so you won't be impolite. There must have been a slight resentment there. then. I think, uh, particularly when I was earning $2 a week and mm -hmm. trying to get through high school, my stepfather was having difficult times, and obviously my real father was uh, doing quite well if he could pick up a new uh, Lincoln or Cadillac. Gee, yeah, strange situation. through the door now with his choice and the choice this is, it is no, Nelson Rockefeller the former governor of New York who was leading the list of speculation among many people a man who is 66 years old one of the best known names in America politically and otherwise and certainly an international figure in his own right after a great deal of soul searching after Considering the advice of members of the Congress, Republicans, as well as the Democratic leadership, after consulting with uh, many, many people within the Republican Party and without, I have made a decision which I would now like to announce to the American people. But the man that I am selecting as nominee for vice president, is a person whose long record of accomplishment in the government and outside is well known. He served uh, in the Department of State under former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He served uh, under the presidency of Harry Truman. He served uh, in the Department of HEW under President Eisenhower. He has served as governor of the great empire state, the state of New York, for 15 years, the longest period of time in the history of the state of New York. It is my honor and privilege to introduce to you a good partner for me, and I think a good partner for our country and the world. So I now announce officially that I will send the name of Nelson Rockefeller to the Congress of the United States for confirmation. Nelson.
as you pointed out in your moving message to the Congress, these are very serious times. The times, as you pointed out, that require the closest cooperation between the Congress of the United States and the executive branch of government. They also require the dedication of every American to our common national interest. You, Mr. President, through your dedication and your openness, have already reawakened faith and hope. And under your leadership, we as a people and we as a nation have the will, the determination, and the capability to overcome the hard realities of our times. I'm optimistic about the long-term future. Thank you, sir. to our look at Gerald Ford, and we are at a moment that was very unusual. It was only the second time it had ever happened, and it only happened these two times in the history of the United States, and that was the 25th Amendment, set the rules in motion for what succession to the presidency would be, and allowed for a president to appoint a vice president in the case of a situation where there were no, was no vice president. This has been done because of the Kennedy assassination, because it was a period of time after President Kennedy was assassinated until Lyndon Johnson was reelected or elected in his own right to the presidency, that Hubert Humphrey ascended to the vice presidency, that there had been no vice president. So they changed this law and made the 25th Amendment that set in stone the secession to the presidency. And of course, President Nixon was forced to choose another vice president when Spiro Agnew was forced out, and uh, and that was Gerald Ford, and less than a year later, maybe eight, nine months later, uh, President Nixon himself was overthrown, and Gerald Ford became president because of what had happened. He had never been on the ballot. He was the, uh, the unelected president, uh, and first one of the first things he has to do is pick a new vice president to serve uh, with him, and that is going to end up being Governor uh, Nelson Rockefeller from uh, New York. And this is sort of that story. We're going to let you listen in. Hugh Scott, the Senate Minority Leader, as he introduces uh, uh, Mr. Rockefeller at the first hearings in the Senate. And of course, the ceremony itself, when Nelson Rockefeller becomes the Vice President of the United States. The President's letter urging uh, implementation of the 25th Amendment in accordance with its terms and in accordance with the assurance given by num numerous senators and congressmen while it was being considered has been put in the record by the chairman. I have uh, drafted a letter to the president, uh, which I will send today and copy of which I have already delivered to him. Uh, which I would like to read in reply to his letter. Dear Mr. President, I have your letter of yesterday urging my assistance in expediting the nomination procedures associated with the selection of a new president. Congress has failed to implement and expedite the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. 
prosecution, and I regret this very much. Certainly all relevant evidence should be made available, but there is also substantial evidence that Congress has fallen short of its responsibility in expediting these hearings and other actions. In reviewing the legislative history of the 25th Amendment, I have found ample references to the necessity fulfilling presidential and vice presidential vacancies as quickly as possible. While the Senate floor manager of the amendment, Senator By of Indiana, said he, quote, could foresee the attempt to delay and stall the confirmation, unquote, Senator Sam Irvin responded that patriotic and intelligent members of Congress who love their country, quote, will not jeopardize their country by holding up the consideration of new leaders. In the House of Representatives, then chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Representative Emanuel Sella, who also served as floor manager of the amendment, said, quote, we dare not longer trifle with this situation by neglect. If there is a vacancy, the vacancy must and should be filled, unquote. Congressman John Lindsay noted that a delay in the Senate would put, quote, the monkey on the back of the Congress to do its job. The president does his job in the selection of a proper person to fill the office of the vice presidency. And then Congress must answer to the country if it does not speedily perform its job, unquote. Now, it is my hope that the spirit of the 25th Amendment, displayed in 1965, will be adhered to now as the Congress continues its consideration of a new vice president, sincerely and signed by me. Uh, there have been numerous editorials on this subject, almost unfailingly critical of the delays of the Congress. Uh, we have conducted exhaustive hearings here. Many of the delays are not the fault of the Senate Rules Committee, but the delays incident to securing information from the Joint Committee on Internal Revenue Taxation and from various agencies of the federal government, although the FBI greatly expedited its part of this process. Uh, one of the unfortunate delays occurred when the House Judiciary Committee refused to hold joint hearings with the Senate, and had they done that, uh, perhaps as much as a month or six weeks could have been saved. Without reference to editorials in the rest of the country, let me be parochial enough to quote from those in Philadelphia's, two of Philadelphia's newspapers, the Philadelphia Inquirer of January 10th, uh, November 10th, 1974. Uh, the president really believes that U.S. needs a vice president and that he should be confirmed as soon as possible, according to Press Secretary Ron Nesson. That is reasonable enough. At the least, Congress should act one way or another, and so forth. There's more quotes in there. And then, to skip a bit, well, it took Mr. Ford 11 days. He became president on August 9th and announced his choice of Mr. Rockefeller on August 20th. That was almost three months ago, and yet Congress still has not said yes or no. So what does that tell us about the decisiveness of the legislative branch? Question mark. It is one thing to be thorough, but it is another to drag out these proceedings for reasons which have nothing to do with Nelson Rockefeller's qualifications. And again, skipping in the interest of brevity, 
The conclusion, we do not doubt that some congressmen and senators are genuinely troubled by disclosures about the gifts Mr. Rockefeller has bestowed so lavishly around the political community, among other places. Sooner or later, however, they must decide whether this disqualifies him from the nation's second highest office. Our own view is that nothing, this is the night newspapers, our own view is that nothing which has come to light thus far should bar this strong and distinguished American leader from the vice presidency. The point we want to make here, however, is that Congress should get on with a decision no matter what it is, and it should base that decision on the merits of the nomination instead of extraneous political considerations. After all this time, the legislators can hardly be accused of acting in haste and having watched so many of these same men and women blindly ratify 11th hour vice presidential nominations at political conventions, we view with some skepticism the extravagant caution they now profess. And having participated in a number of those conventions, if I may interject, I can say that a vice president is often chosen the way we come to be born at a time when our progenitors had their minds on quite other matters. To conclude the uh, editorial, further delay would be as unconscionable as it is unnecessary. The hearings in both houses should proceed with dispatch and a vote should be taken well before the Christmas recess. The United States, as Mr. Ford said, needs a vice president now. And then Mr. Robert Roth of the Bulletin on November 5th, 74. Mr. Roth is a respected correspondent who is far more often critical of uh, my party, although he has been critical of both. Uh, but he writes, and I again accept only, President Ford did his part promptly when he became president. He nominated Nelson Rockefeller for the standby post, but Congress has not done its part of the job and obviously is in no hurry to. The justification for this procrastination has been partially pleaded by a member of, number of, it says member of congressmen, who have pointed out that it is their duty to examine with the utmost thoroughness the merits and demerits of a man who might become president, not by popular vote, but by congressional suffrage. They cite the need for meticulous examination of Rockefeller's income tax payments and gifts, and the way he may or may not have used his great wealth to enhance his political power. Those are good justifications up to a point, but they do not alter the fact that Congress could by now have completed its investigations and voted the Rockefeller nomination up or down had it wanted to. It didn't for a number of reasons which had nothing to do with Rockefeller's qualifications or lack of them. And some of these reasons are cited. And I ask unanimous consent to include these two uh, uh, articles in the record, Mr. Chairman. Without objection, they'll be and made a part of the record. Finally, uh, I met with the president this morning at breakfast, and I learn from him what I have also seen in the press, <clears throat> that the president has the assurances of the Speaker of the House and of Chairman Rodino to press on with these hearings, uh, or let, perhaps I ought to say to begin to press on with these hearings, or to start to begin to press on with these hearings. And I believe there will be a meeting of the House Judiciary Committee on November the 21st. I understand that the Speaker now believes that action uh, on this nomination is possible before Christmas. I 
sincerely hope so. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. I, Nelson Aldrich Rockefeller. Do solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office. The duties of the office. On which I am about to enter. On which I am about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. a special permission for someone not a member of the Senate to address the Senate, and the procedure will now be for uh, Senator Byrd, the acting majority leader, after uh, Vice President Rockefeller signs in, be the procedure for Senator Byrd to ask unanimous consent for Vice President Rockefeller to address the uh, assembly. Following uh, the governor's uh, words, which are not expected to exceed uh, four or five minutes, there will be a semi-public reception down the hall, although it cannot be considered a public one because the Capitol was secured this afternoon. Uh, getting ready Senator, for the come to order. Senator of West Virginia is recognized. Mr. President, I ask unanimous consent that the Vice President of the United States be permitted to address the Senate at this time. Without objection, so ordered. Mr. President, Mr. Speaker, President Pro Tem Eastland, Mr. Chief Justice, your Excellencies, the member of the Diplomatic Corps, distinguished guests, and fellow Americans. As I stand before you, I feel a great sense of humility. I feel a great sense of gratitude for the privilege of serving the country I love. I feel a deep sense of gratitude to President Ford, to the Congress of the United States, and to the people of America. To the President for his trust and confidence and the opportunity he has given me to serve this great nation in working with him. A man for whom I have profound respect, admiration, 
and warmth of affection, a man of integrity, sincerity, openness, dedication, a man bearing the lonely burdens of the presidency with deep human understanding and total devotion to his country. And my admiration to the First Lady, Betty Ford, and her great warmth and her courage. And if you'll forgive me for a personal note, my love and admiration to my own gallant wife, Happy. I feel deeply grateful to the committees and the members of the United States Senate and the House of Representatives for their confirmation of my nomination. Among the many reasons I look forward with pride and with keen anticipation to serving the Senate as their presiding officer is the fact that my mother's father, my grandfather, Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, represented the great state of Rhode Island in this very chamber for 31 years after serving for three years in the House of Representatives. The thoroughness with which the Congress exercised its responsibilities on behalf of the American people under the 25th Amendment has been another dramatic evidence of the enduring strength and vitality of our Constitution and our unique American system. I've learned a great deal from this experience of the past four months. And I've come out of it with an even greater respect for the Congress of the United States. A more profound appreciation of the collective wisdom of the American people as expressed through the Congress. And a deeper understanding of the breadth of the responsibility to the people of this great free land that falls upon those of us in positions of public trust. I deeply appreciate the outstanding work of all those in government agencies involved in the investigation and preparation of material for the congressional committees. I admire and respect the vigilant coverage of the free American press, radio, and television through which the people of America were so well informed. I would like to thank all of those citizens who participated directly in the process by expressing themselves to their representatives in the Senate and in the House, and to those who sent words of encouragement to Happy and to me. And finally, especially to you, Mr. Chief Justice, my thanks for your administrating the oath and symbolizing as you do the rule of law by which this great republic functions. In this, or this is a period in which our country faces tremendous difficulties and unprecedented problems both at home and abroad, problems that affect 
every section of our country, and every family in America. But there is nothing wrong with America that Americans cannot write. pledge myself to the fullest limit of my capacity to work with you, Mr. President, and the Congress in the great task of building the strength of America to meet the grave new problems which we confront as a nation and as a people. I thank you. your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. feel even more aggrieved at their president's attitude to the mess they're in. They reckon they've already paid their debt for the sins of the past in the recent cuts in public services. They now see more of their rubbish and less of their dustmen, because there are now less dustmen to see. 2,000 have been laid off. Why do you kick all the cans? Well, you got loaded with rats over here. And uh, if you don't kick the can, you pick it up, a rat will to crawl up your arm. This way, the rat gets out of the can before you pick it up. You don't want them crawling on you. you know. Do you see many rats around here? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. The whole lot is infested with rats. Due to the debris that's thrown in there. In fact, there's one right here. Look at that. That's a good example of what we are just talking about. Is it quite common for you to find dead rats around here? Uh, mostly live ones. Fortunately, he's dead. <laughs> and that's... A, that's a small one in comparison to some that we've seen. The lot is really in bad shape. Usually we've had enough men and manpower to get in here and do a pretty good job of cleaning it up, but due to the money crisis, they just don't have the manpower, and this is the results. Rats like that? Sure. How has the financial crisis affected your work? My work? 
I lost all faith in the job. How, how can you work, you know, and you don't know what you're going to get paid on Friday? Two weeks ago, they stopped the checks. They wouldn't pay some of the men. We were fortunate. We got our checks cashed at 9 o'clock. But the guys that would cash them in the afternoon, they didn't know whether they'd have money to pay the bonds. And uh, how can you work? You work a week and then don't know whether you're going to get paid at the end of the week. The guy that I have to pay my bills to, the grocer, he wants his money. He's not going to wait. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be hard to say. I lost all morale on a job. So when you get a check now, you cash it at once, do you? <laughs> as yeah, soon as the bank of, opens, yeah. It's like, a, it's like a gamble, you know. Are they going to have the money or are they not going to have the money? So I don't know. It's kind of tough. I, I came from a pretty good job in outside industry to this job, mainly because of the security, the pension system, and a little bit the salary. And if they're going to take it away, if I can't afford to live, I'll have to get another job. And if the garbage men are threatening to leave New York, how much more worrying would it be if the big companies that pay the big taxes were to pull out? One of the major crises that faced President uh, Ford in the 1970s happened in February of 1975, and that was the New York City entered a serious financial crisis. Uh, Mayor Abraham Beam um, had allowed, you know, I don't want to blame it all on him, but the city had run out of money to pay any of its operating expenses. It wasn't able to borrow any more money. It faced the prospect of defaulting on everything, its obligations, and in declaring bankruptcy. And as you just heard, they had a rat infestation problem. They were, their sanitation people couldn't even work on it. It was it was a disaster, and they wanted Gerald Ford to bail them out. Uh, the same year that uh, I had here, uh, the city's outstanding debt had reached $13.5 billion. Uh, the banks uh, had reviewed the city's revenue projections and decided they would no longer underwrite the notes and bonds for the city of New York. And so the city couldn't borrow any money to operate. And by April of 1975, New York City had run out of money. And President Ford basically told them they had to figure it out on their own, which was a very brave thing for the president to do. Uh, and, you know, I, I, tough love. But New York City, you have to give them credit. They figured out a way back. And, and they're a thriving city today. Uh, 45 years later, but uh, it was, a, it was a, a huge crisis for the Ford administration. The story begins in two cities at the same moment in 1975. One is New York, the other is Damascus. It was a moment when two ideas about how it might be possible to run the world without politics first took hold. In 1975, New York City was on the verge of collapse. For 30 years, the politicians who ran the city had borrowed more and more money from the banks to pay for its growing services and welfare. But in the early 70s, the middle classes fled from the city, and the taxes they paid disappeared with them. So the banks lent the city even more. But then they began to get worried about the size of the growing debt and whether the city would ever be able to pay it back. And then one day in 1975, the banks just stopped. 
The city held its regular meeting to issue bonds in return for the loans, overseen by the city's financial controller. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Today, the city of New York is offering for competitive bidding sale 260 million tax anticipation notes, of which 100 million will mature on June 3rd, 1975. The banks were supposed to turn up at 11 a.m., but it soon became clear that none of them were going to appear. The meeting was rescheduled for 2 p.m., and the banks promised they would turn up. The announcement on behalf of the controller is that the offer, which we had expected to receive and announce at 2 o'clock this afternoon, is now expected at 4 o'clock. Well, does this mean that uh, so far nobody wants those bonds? We will be making a further announcement at 4 o'clock, and anything further that I could say now I think would not advance the interest of the sale, which is now in progress. Does this mean that you have not been able to sell them so far today? We will have a further announcement at 4 o'clock. What happened that day in New York marked a radical shift in power. The banks insisted that in order to protect their loans, they should be allowed to take control of the city. The city appealed to the president, but he refused to help. So a new committee was set up to manage the city's finances. Out of nine members, eight of them were bankers. It was the start of an extraordinary experiment where the financial institutions took power away from the politicians and started to run society themselves. The city had no other option. The bankers enforced what was called austerity in the city, insisting that thousands of teachers, policemen and firemen were sacked. This was a new kind of politics. The old politicians believed that crises were solved through negotiations and deals. The bankers had a completely different view. They were just the representatives of something that couldn't be negotiated with, the logic of the market. To them, there was no alternative to this system. It should run society. Just by shifting paper around, these slobs can make 60, 65 million dollars in a single transaction. That would take care of all of the layoffs in the city. So it's reckless, it's cruel, and it's a disgrace. There'd be a fair number of bankers, of course, who'd say, well, it's the unions who have been too greedy. Now, what would your reaction be to now, that? I guess they're right, in a way. If you can make $60 million on a single transaction and a worker makes $8,000, $9,000 a year, I suppose they're correct. And as they go back to their little estates in Greenwich, Connecticut, I want to wish them well, the slobs. But the extraordinary thing was, no one opposed the bankers. The radicals and the left-wingers, who ten years before had dreamt of changing America through revolution, did nothing. They had retreated and were living in the abandoned buildings in Manhattan. This was an extraordinary moment uh, in the you know history of the country, and Gerald Ford had taken a pretty you know controversial stand. Let me give you. I've looked up. Uh, a, a world biography of U.S. presidents, and it talks about the situation when it's covering Gerald Ford. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to read out of it so that you get a sense of the timeline and things that have happened. Uh, it says that, you know, adding to the controversies over both congressional and presidential impotence was the question about the looming financial default of New York City. For eight months, the nation's most populous city paying the price 
for attempting to cope with overwhelming economic and social forces without budgetary discipline stood at the brink of economic collapse. Only in later months did it become apparent that the New York predicament merely epitomized the problems faced by the nation's older urban centers. Meanwhile, with default virtually a certainty, those who traditionally had rural biases against big city evils found satisfaction that, at last, the chickens had come home to roost because of misguided liberalism. Ford, the conservative, middle American president, assumed the support of that constituency and kept his distance from the situation even as harried local officials searched for ways to avoid fiscal disaster. Ford's position was never a mystery, yet when he delivered a stern rebuke to the city on October 29, 1975, promising to veto any bailout of the nation's premier city, the finality of this statement came as a draconian blow. In one of those journalistic feats that convert a political leader's comments into pungent rhetoric, the New York Daily News reported the president's position with the headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead. The Ford rationale, of course, was simple. Only by his display of firmness would the city tidy its financial house. In the days that followed, there was a growing realization that the administration's position had un- underestimated how much Others throughout the country feared the implications of permitting the collapse of New York City. Vice President Rockefeller, who, by the way, had been governor of New York, openly began to suggest that the government might indeed have to play a role from within the White House itself, and and came some similar signals as that of what Rockefeller was saying, especially from the Treasury Secretary, William Simon. Ford, though, held his his... his Stern justification that he was forcing New York to restore its own fiscal viability. But at the same time, his retreat had become inevitable. And within the city, frantic negotiations took place involving all parties, including banks that had funded the city's short-term securities. And under the pressure, all interested parties came together during additional weeks of negotiations. Drastic reductions were made in the city's workforce. Bankers restructured the bond issues, and the new Municipal Assistance Corporation was established to sell securities. Union pension funds were committed to their to their purchase of those bonds and securities, and one near disaster after another was averted in a series of cliffhanger scenarios. Finally, with the city seemingly acting to repair damage and the broader consequences of a default becoming clearer, Ford changed his stance when he met with the press on the 26th of November. Quote, I have, quite frankly, he announced, been surprised that they have come up as far as they have. Ford then asked Congress to approve federal loans to the city as a, on a seasonal basis through the 30th of June, 1978. He covered his own retreat by emphasizing that New York had bailed itself out. And finally, by a narrow margin in the House, Congress approved Ford's request for a seasonal financing act to provide up to three, $2.3 billion for short-term loans during the next three years at 1% above the federal cost of the money. Uh, to further fortify the city against default, in case that assistance failed to work, additional legislation was enacted to facilitate municipal bankruptcy proceedings so that New York and other cities could adjust repayment of their loans. Ford's position, combined with the local and federal measures, induced some painful cutbacks, but did start the process of rehabilitating New York's finances. So by making them be more responsible, President Ford did succeed in getting them to get their house in order and restructure and create the New York City that you see today. Again, leadership, because sometimes somebody's got to tell somebody no. 
Uh, and here's the press conference on November 28th, 1975, when President Ford, after seeing how the bankers and everybody have, has restructured the issues in New York, as he steps up now to help make to help make sure that the city of New York is able to move forward by proposing legislation and money to help them. I have decided to ask the Congress when it returns from recess for authority to provide a temporary line of credit to the state of New York to enable it to supply seasonal financing of essential services for the people of New York City. New York officials must continue to accept primary responsibility. There must be no misunderstanding of my position. If local parties fail to carry out their plan, I am prepared to stop even the seasonal federal assistance. The president's action, crucial as it may be, does not bring our serious difficulties to an end. The coming months and years will mean new sacrifices for all New Yorkers and new demands upon every segment of the city's population. As you can see, it was pretty tough sledding. But I believe that Gerald Ford made them come up with the route back. And that was important and a shine of leadership to say to people, this is your problem. You figure it out and bring your plan to us. And then we can help, which is what President Ford did. One of the most important things that a president does uh, is appoint justices to the federal court, none more important than the United States Supreme Court. And Gerald Ford got to pick one justice to the Supreme Court during his two and a half years. And that justice went on. He lived to be 99 years old. He went on to serve for... <laughs> Uh, 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 40 years probably, and had a pretty enormous impact on the Supreme Court. It was John Paul Stevens. And I would argue that his positions might not have been exactly what a Republican normally would have been looking for in a justice. Though Gerald Ford remained proud of John Paul Stevens' tenure. The nomination of a justice of the United States Supreme Court is one of the most important decisions a president has to make. The opinions of the court affect the course of our society and the lives of individual citizens for decades to come. The confidence in which the court is held is the sum of the esteem extended to each of its nine members. And nothing is more essential to our system of liberty under law than the integrity of the judicial branch of the federal government. With this burden of responsibility in mind, I have conducted a thorough search and considered an extensive list of distinguished men and women to fill the existing vacancy on the Supreme Court. The views of a wide range of Americans in the legal profession and in both public and private life have been sought and are appreciated. I have decided to submit to Congress when it returns the name of the person I believe to be best qualified to serve as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. United States Judge John Paul Stevens of the Seventh Circuit 
of the Court of Appeals in Chicago, Illinois. Judge Stevens is held in the highest esteem by his colleagues in the legal profession and the judiciary and has had an outstanding career in the practice and the teaching of law as well as on the federal bench. I am confident that he will bring both professional and personal qualities of the highest order to the Supreme Court. Because of the urgency attached to the earliest consideration of this nomination by the United States Senate, in order that the court may be at full strength in considering its current calendar, I am announcing my choice today and will submit Judge Stevens' name formally on Monday. I believe the best interest of the nation will be served by prompt confirmation proceedings in the Senate. Thank you very much. I looked up a biography um, of John Paul Stevens. It was on Oyez, which is a, a, a Supreme Court resources page uh, from the Justice Supreme Court Center. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, Justice John Paul Stevens overcame family tragedy during the Great Depression and went on to become the third longest serving justice in the history of the Supreme Court. John Paul Stevens was born on April 20th, 1920 in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. The Stevens were one of Chicago's wealthiest families with a business empire that included what was then the world's largest hotel. Tragedy struck in 1933 when Justice Stevens' father, Ernest, his uncle Raymond, and his grandfather, J.W., were all indicted on embezzlement charges. The stress caused J.W. to suffer a serious stroke, and Raymond committed suicide before the trial began. Ernest was eventually acquitted, but the family business and the hotel were lost. John Paul Stevens, a young teenager when his father was indicted, did not allow the hardship to slow him down. During the trial and in its aftermath, Justice Stevens continued to excel in his studies at the University of Chicago Preparatory High School, and as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, he became a member of the same fraternity as his father, Pi Beta Kappa, and he also married Elizabeth Sharon, with whom he had a son and three daughters. Uh, Shortly after earning a B.A. in English, Justice Stevens enlisted in the Navy and served as a codebreaker during World War II. That's pretty impressive for which he was awarded a Bronze Star, and after the war, Justice Stevens attended Northwestern Law School with funds from the GI Bill. He excelled in his studies and graduated magnus cum laude with the highest GPA in the law school's history. So this guy really had a resume that was pretty impressive. After completing his clerkship with the Supreme Court, Justice Wiley Rutledge, uh, Justice Stevens returned to Chicago and joined a prominent law firm where he specialized in antitrust law. He gained a reputation as a talented antitrust lawyer and soon left the firm to start his own practice uh, in Rothschild, Stevens, Barry, and Myers. Because of his antitrust expertise, he was invited to teach at Northwestern University's and University of Chicago's law schools. And he also held a s- several positions as special counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Attorney General's Office. In 1970, President Nixon appointed Justice Stevens to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And as an appellate judge, Justice Stevens continued to establish himself as an expert legal thinker. Five years later, he was elevated to the Supreme Court with Justice when Justice William uh, Douglas stepped down. And although appointed by a Republican, over time, Justice Stevens emerged as a leader for the court's liberal wing. 
A sample of his more significant decisions include Sony vs. Universal City Studios Incorporated, in which the court held that no violation of copyright laws were involved in the use of home VCRs, Atkins vs. Virginia, in which the court banned capital punishment for the mentally impaired, and the PGA Tour Inc. vs. Casey Martin, in which the court validated disabled golfer Casey Martin's right to ride in a golf cart under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, in Martin, Justice Stevenson led the court in a, in a, to a 7-2 vote liberal victory, claiming that the ADA had no worth if it did not create new opportunities for the disabled. Uh, Justice Stevens retired on June 29, 2010, and at age 90, when he stepped down, he was the third longest-serving justice in the court's history. Since retiring, he has written two books, Six Amendments, How and Why, we Should Change the Constitution, and Five Chiefs, a Supreme Court memoir. In 2014, Justice Stevens testified before a Senate committee to criticize recent Supreme Court decisions that weakened spending limits in political campaigns. Even in retirement, Justice Stevens remained an active participant in the formation of Supreme Court decisions, and he passed away on July 16, 2019. And I just wanted you to get a feel for who he was because he also... Uh, was an important figure in the discussion of the Second Amendment rights uh, of people in this country, and he believed that the Second Amendment uh, did only was meant for a militia, which is a position that I actually don't agree with. Uh, I think that you know that when you look at the Second Amendment, you have to look at all the other amendments. You know, there's a reason why you have a constitutional right not to have a buck private planted in your house. And that's because that was a problem that the British kept doing to the colonists. And so I have a hard time believing that these people who had fought a revolution protected your right to bear arms only to have you be able to use that, protect that right, you know, as a member of a state militia. I think they meant for individuals to have the right to bear arms. And so I'm a Second Amendment person, even though, you know, I do think that there's probably a, a legitimate argument that the technology of weapons Weaponry is uh, has uh, advanced to a level that you know you could argue that the Second Amendment, while you have the right to bear arms, that there could be some uh, you know just like driving a car. A car is not a constitutional right, but you have to have a driver's license to have it. That that with some of the advancement in these weapons, you ought to be at least trained how to use them, but. Uh, you know, that's neither here nor there, and I'm certainly not a, a Supreme Court justice who am I to be arguing with John Paul Stevens, but I do find that position uh, one that I don't agree with. Uh, but he was a giant figure in the history of the United States Supreme Court. And here is a, a PBS's look at how John Paul Stevens wanted to be remembered uh, after he passed away at the age of 99. Finally tonight, remembering a legend of the law, retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, whose career on the high court spanned 35 years, died yesterday. In a statement, Chief Justice John Roberts said he brought to our bench an inimitable blend of kindness, humility, wisdom, and independence. His unrelenting commitment to justice has left us a better nation. We look back now on Stevens' life and legacy. 
By the time John Paul Stevens received the nation's highest civilian honor in 2012, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, he had already put his stamp on American law. As former President Barack Obama noted that day, Stevens, bow tie and all, did so in his own way. During oral argument, Justice John Paul Stevens often began his line of questioning with a polite, may I interrupt, or may I ask a question? Um, You can imagine the lawyers uh, would say, okay. Uh, After which, uh, he would just as politely force a lawyer to stop dancing around and focus on the most important issues in the case. And that was his signature style. Modest, insightful, well-prepared, razor-sharp. The justice was a product of the Windy City, the son of a hotel businessman and an English teacher. A longtime Chicago Cubs fan, Stevens said as a boy he was at Wrigley Field in 1932, witness to the New York Yankees' Babe Ruth and his legendary called shot home run. After serving in the U.S. Navy, working as a Supreme Court clerk, and lawyering in private practice, Stevens was appointed in 1970 to be a federal appeals judge. Then, in 1975, President Gerald Ford picked him to fill a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court, where Justice Stevens would serve for 35 years. In that time, the Republican appointee was eventually seen as a liberal leader on the court, although in 2011, a retired Justice Stevens told our late NewsHour colleague Gwen Eiffel that he never cared for the label. By the time he retired, you were considered to be the court's unlikely liberal. Were you really that unlikely? Or were you really that liberal? Well, uh, I never have uh, been a fan of trying to... Uh, use uh, labels like that to describe uh, uh, justices because very often a justice will be liberal on one issue and conservative on another. One of the justices' former Supreme Court clerks, Melissa Arbus Sherry, echoed that sentiment. He was a true judge in that he just felt like the justice or or judge, you know, is to bring their own judgment to, to each and every case. And I think that is what he applied throughout his his career, and it may have led to different decisions along along the way. Stevens' majority opinions handed legal victories to detainees at the U.S. naval base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, who were seeking to challenge their detentions. Another ruled in favor of convicts with mental disabilities who had been sentenced to death. And during that 2011 NewsHour interview, he said he disagreed with the way some conservative justices interpret federal law and the Constitution. Everybody agrees that it's appropriate to do everything you can to understand the original intent behind both statutes and constitutional provisions. But the notion that that can provide the answer in all cases is what is incorrect. It sheds light on all cases, but it's just one of the tools you have to use. Often, Stevens was in dissent. Even in his final months of life, Stevens lamented the court's 2000 Bush v. Gore ruling, which ended a Florida recount and effectively decided that year's presidential election. He disagreed sharply with how his conservative colleagues voted in the Heller case, loosening gun laws. And when I sat down with Stevens this spring for one of his final interviews, he said this about the 2010 Citizens United ruling on campaign finance laws. 
Why do you think it's had a, a corrosive effect on American politics? Just look at the amount of money. I can't give you the figures, but the millions and millions of dollars are, are spent on campaigns now. And often there's state representatives spending money provided by residents of other states. People in the district should be the ones who decide the outcome of elections. The ruling in Citizens United came toward the end of Stephen's tenure, throughout which he was able to maintain a rich personal life. Again, former clerk Melissa Arbus-Sherry. He was very passionate about everything, about, you know, all of his interests. And so he had a lot of extracurricular interests outside of the court, tennis and, and golf and, and bridge and the like. Um, but he was so passionate about the law. I mean, for many years after he was off the court, he was still, you know, writing and speaking and traveling. I asked him to assess his lengthy career and his own impact on American law. You have a remarkable legacy on the court. You served for 35 years. What do you believe your legacy will be? Well, <laughs> it's difficult to figure out, but I, I'd like people to think I was an honest judge and a good judge. And I, I always tried to reach the best result in every case. He suffered a stroke earlier this week and died yesterday evening in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Justice John Paul Stevens was 99 years old. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.